It's uh, the second day of our spring seven-day session, 2nd of October 2017. And we're going to um, continue where we left off yesterday, just fin finishing up with um, some <coughs> comments by Master Sheng Yin from a book called Illuminating Silence. And um, we've been looking at... Um, Shikantaza a little bit, and then uh, just about um, two pages on koans. He writes a uh, the gung an, and that's the the Chinese form of this word, koan. The gung an, literally public case, uh, as in a case of law, is an account of a particular incident that occurred between Chan masters or a master and a disciple. Some are composed from ancient Indian stories of early Buddhism. Typically, a gungan does not make everyday sense. The participants in the story are not using ordinary logic. They are not talking common sense, yet between the two of them there is a very clear communication. The reader or meditator has the task of penetrating the meaning of that communication. Um, sometimes um, you, you hear people commenting that 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 um, Zen uh, the koans are like Zen riddles that they and that they're just the masters um, being um, zany in order to break down our reliance on language. But it's much more than that. There's there's a very specific uh, meaning in these stories. And it's our job when we take them up to, to um, get inside the story and, and explore that meaning. A hua do is usually a phrase or a sentence from such a story. Some hua do's are made up on the spur of the moment or can be as blunt as questions such as who are you? And of course, in the koan, mu, mu is the huado, um, the nub of the of the story. Where the whole story is a monk asked Joshu, "Does even a dog have the Buddha nature?" And Joshu said, "Mu." So we boil it all down to that one word, and it's one of the things that makes koans very powerful, because it's like everything is is brought to a head. In this in this one word or, or short phrase, in Song Dynasty China, gungans and huadoes became important means of training large bodies of of monks in monasteries. And nuns, of course. 
Some teachers referred to this practice as using poison to extract poison. There are, there are different ways we could interpret this statement, using poison to extract poison. But um, one way we could understand it is, is that, that poison is, is often bitter. And so, um, so is common work. It, it takes us into, into um, difficult places. But um, eventually, this 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 difficult work that we do with koans um, leads to the removal of the poison of delusion. So, um, you can say a lesser poison uh, leads to the um, removal of a greater one. In, in the Vajrayana tradition, they talking about talk about the suffering that leads out of suffering. That there are in in training and practice, there are all kinds of hardships that we endure, but they're different from ordinary hardships, in that then they uh, lead out of suffering. You know, the 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 kind of meaningless and uh, circular type of sufferings of samsara. Sometimes an insight into a gong an or huado may trigger an enlightenment experience, and the method is therefore considered to be a key to enlightenment. There are many gong ans that have been compiled into collections with a commentary. When teachers present a practitioner with a huado, there is usually no talk of levels of use. The huado is to be approached directly, immediately, and should yield an instantaneous response. Response. Yet many people, especially practitioners in the West, find this merely confusing. If a master says, go and investigate the Huato, the practitioner may well go off and try to do so, but actually she may have no idea what to do and waste a lot of time. I would like, therefore, to present this practice in terms of four levels of use. And we've um, looked at these before in... in uh, other writings by, by Master Xing Yin. And I think they're very useful, uh, these four, there's four different ways that we can work, and how we can get started, how we can get our teeth into a, a koan to start off with. And the, f the first one of these four is repeating the huado. He says, a master gives a student a huado to practice on, but normally it remains pretty meaningless to the student. He cannot question it, so he just repeats it, much as he would if he were reciting a, ma a mantra. Such a practice is useful because it at least calms the mind and brings it from a scattered to a more focused state. Furthermore, such simple repetition may induce strange or wondrous experiences. 
This again is like a person who evokes a powerful response through mantra practice, but one that must not be confused with enlightenment. These um, strange and wondrous experiences that he's talking about come out of our concentration and they can be of many different kinds. We can could, um, have um, a vision of a Buddha or a Bodhisattva or um, some people will have different kinds of psychic experiences. Um, and it, but it is very important to, to uh, not mistake these uh, for enlightenment, to keep pressing on. The second uh, stage that Master Sheng Yin has is questioning the Huado. When you repeat a Huado, a question may appear in your mind. It may occur to you to ask who is repeating the Huado. And this is this is one of the um, one of the Chinese, very common Chinese. Uh, Koans is because the, the Pure Land school is so uh, prevalent that then the koan becomes who is it who is reciting the Buddha's name? That's the main practice of the Pure Land school. Or a, as here, who is repeating the Huado? Who is asking the question? He says, such a question amounts to a huado in its own right. Once uh, such a question comes into clear focus, you should stay with it, not switching from one to another. You are still repeating the huado, but following it with an inquiring mind. Um, sometimes um, a, just a, a spontaneous question will arise, um, not one of the classical uh, preliminary koans, but something else. And... Uh, that's fine too if it's if it's if it's a question that really that really grips the mind and and it's one that can be boiled down to um, uh, a pithy short uh, word or phrase then um, it it can be taken up as a koan natural koan I think it's in the the three pillars of Zen, or it could be in the Zen dawn in the West. Um, Roshi Kaplow tells the story of meeting uh, a man who had who had been through the war and uh, Second World War, and a question that had had risen for him uh, just naturally, which was, "What is reality?" And he just bored into this question. Um, and eventually had a, a, an awakening. You didn't have a teacher, he, um, but eventually, uh, if I recall rightly, um, came to a workshop or um, met with Roshi and, and this helped him to make sense of what had happened. And then also there's a story of, of Fleur Courtois, which some of you may have heard me give talks about, who as a 17-year-old um, was gripped by a question about 
how um, how to how did she see and and eventually had this very powerful uh, opening experience but no context to put it in and and then spent years after this um, pursuing uh, psychology degree um, writing papers trying to find a way to put what she had experienced into context and she finally in the 1960s met met Yasutani Roshi and he um, he tested her and confirmed her experience He says, once a question comes into clear focus, you should stay with it, not switching from one to another. It is, it is important, uh, generally, to persist once one takes up a koan, because there is a, there is a deepening that happens, and we go through all kinds of ups and downs as that deepening occurs. But if we interrupt the process, um, then we, we in some sense uh, go back to square one. I have to say this generally because there are cases where, and I know of pe people who have at a, at a late point um, f switched for instance from one, one koan to another and, and it's been helpful. So this, it's not an absolute thing, but um, you could think of it as being like, and, and this is an analogy that's used in, in, in Asia, um, it's like, it's like you're, you're excavating a mine, and uh, if you keep changing practices and, and you're excavating so far and then and then coming up against something and then switching to something else, then you start excavating again and you may get down to the same point when really what's needed is a sense of, you know, when you hit that, that granite rock at a certain point to uh, keep going. So the second stage is when there is the development of, of an inquiring mind. We start to have be, to be uh, gripped by the question. And if we, if we persist with this and, and put energy into it, then uh, we go to stage three, which uh, is called great doubt. He writes, when a practitioner feels an urgent need to understand the Huado and to answer the question, the great doubt arises. There is now more or less an obsession with the question. You continue asking and asking with great, great earnestness and resolve. The mind is so filled with the question that eventually the whole universe appears as one gigantic question. 
This is then called the, the great mass of doubt. The universe itself is the Huado. This is the level to which the Chinese apply the term Tsan, meaning investigate. And as we've talked before, we can't just um, will this, this stage of great doubt. It's something that um, unfolds in its own time. Uh, through our through our persistence in that in that second stage of of questioning. The fourth stage he describes is watching the Huado, and he says, actually this level can be said to apply only to those who have already seen into their true nature. When a person has had an enlightenment experience, this does not mean he or she is completely and permanently enlightened. Even for those with some experience of Kensho, there remains a necessity for further cultivation, deepening one's practice. Watching the Huado ensures that the power of the practice does not fade. The Huado is simply called to mind and allowed to evoke what it will. It may be that experiences get deeper and deeper, or it may be that they are just like bubbles that arise and disperse in a running brook. For some people, the basic Huado may become their fundamental practice for the rest of your, their lives. And this is actually the case um, in uh, Korea, where you might take up what is this as um, your primary koan and may have in, um, insights into it, but um, you just keep deepening that intimacy with it. And all the koans really are, are bottomless. There's no end to the, the richness that they can throw up. I've discovered this um, teaching this, the koans, uh, working with students on, on different koans, is that um, every time, pretty much, um, one sees it from a new angle or sees a, a way in which it applies to one's life, one's situation, um, from just coming back and, and, and working with a student who naturally comes to it f from a slightly different angle and so, so different aspects of, of, of the meaning of the koans will be, will be exposed. He continues, perhaps you are wondering about those who have reached ultimate enlightenment. Do they need to practice? Unless they have reached perfect Buddhahood, practice will remain important even for them. Once upon a time there was an enlightened master who continued to prostrate regularly to the Buddha statue. 
when people asked him why he did this, he simply said that it was what he did. Another master continued to read sutras. When he was asked why he bothered to do so, he said he did it to shield his eyes. Even great masters continue their practice. When you are practicing at the second level, many questions may arise. Perhaps they come from the books you have been reading, or they are a guess you make. Maybe a question comes from your own unconscious. But no matter how it arises, whenever an answer takes the form of words or an idea, it is most assuredly wrong. Maybe you are delighted by your answer. That's it, you may exclaim to yourself. But be careful. Very soon you will be like a deflated balloon, or like someone who, under LSD, has written down an answer to the riddle of the universe and, on coming to, reads a load of rubbish. The Huado does not follow the logic of the reasoning mind. If you try to figure out an answer or seek a subtle phrase to contain some insight, you will be mistaken. Someone who comes up with such an answer is like someone awakening at night and mistaking a thief for his father. And I guess this, is, this relates to a, um, a Chinese story about um, somebody waking up in the night, I think this is how it goes, and hearing sounds and thinking it's, it's their own uh, father coming in when in fact, in fact it's a thief. So rather than being some um, benevolent uh, influence, it's danger right there, not seen. If you get into a bad habit of this kind, you will invite many thieves into your house. But I guess that's that's um, we can we can guard against this sort of stuff in in f that we um, uh, get to work with the teacher, bring bring stuff to Dogsan and examine it and um, test out what's been seen. Uh, when, when working on, on subsequent goans, a lot of, of what one does is just um, uh, make a presentation and then if it's, if it's not, eliminate it. Now I'd like to switch to the, the text that we're going to be looking at for the next few days. It's a, um, a collection that's called Impetus to Advance in the Zen Gate. And um, it's been the translation that we're working for is by from is uh, by J.C. Cleary, who is the brother of Thomas Cleary, who's translated so many of the um, uh, texts that we refer to in in Zen, the um, Hikigan Roku, the Blue Cliff Record, 
also um, did a massive translation of the Avatamska Sutra and many, many, many others. Very, very prolific translator. And this is his brother, J.C. Cleary, who also has done a lot of uh, translations, very useful translations of Zen texts. And the book that this um, collection appears in, the name is, is, of the book is Meditating with Koans. And this uh, text, the emphasis to advance to, in the Zen ga gate, was put together by um, a master called um, Zhu Hong. And his dates are uh, 1535 to 1615. It's also known as the master of, of Yunqi, uh, which is the monastery that was restored in his honor and where he was the abbot for 32 years. He was born um, in Hangzhou, um, beautiful city, uh, Chinese city, uh, West Lake. Um, and apparently he was a bright student when he was young, but he failed the official examinations. And these were for um, centuries upon centuries, the way to get a job, a, um, a government job. We don't take these um, different levels of, of examinations. So my guess is that his heart wasn't in it. Um, and um, so at the, age of, at the age of 31, so relatively late, he became a monk. And um, he was a monk in the Pure Land School. Um, he, it, the little bit of biographical material I could find um, commented that he was married at the time. And... Um, his, his wife uh, also ordained. He was actually most well known um, or renowned as, um, as for writing a rebuttal to um, a text that was written in Chinese by a, uh, an Italian Jesuit, uh, Matteo Ricci. Um, and this was this was a time when um, uh, the, the very beginnings of the encounter between between uh, Christianity and and Buddhism, and it was it's evident that these um, there was quite a bit of respect between these two, Zhu um, Hong and and Matteo Ricci as they were debating issues of, of, uh, of theology and dharma. He uh, published this particular text that we're going to look at in, in 1600. Um, and just to put that date in perspective, it's a lot later than many of the texts we look at, the Chan texts we look at. This was um, in 1600, Shakespeare was writing, writing his plays. Um, Queen Elizabeth um, died in 1603, and if we come, if we relate this to time to New Zealand, just 40 years later, 1642, um, Ngāti Tumata Kokiri uh, Iwi were encountering Abel Tasman and his men um, in Golden Bay on the South Island, and this this whole period is a little bit 
um, prior to the time of Master Hakuin. Master Hakuin was born in 1686. So we'll start just by um, reading Cleary's uh, introduction to this text. He says a little bit about this Chinese Buddhist teacher, um, Zhu Hong, a little bit more. With the discerning eye of an enlightened adept, Zhu Hong assembled lessons on how to use koans that had been offered by Zen masters over many generations. Consequently, this book does not represent a narrow sectarian perspective on the question of koan study, but a compendium of enlightened advice from a wide range of classic Zen teachers. So it, it, it um, prevent, presents the kind of the um, uh, the popular hits of of uh, instruction on koans, let's say. He says, Zhu uh, Hong was a remarkable man. He lived during the last great fluorescence of Chinese Buddhism in the latter part of the 16th century and early part of the 17th century and participated fully in the characteristic work of the Buddhist teachers of that age, reassembling the Buddhist legacy cutting away errors and misconceptions, and disseminating the living teaching to a wide popular audience. In his own time, Zhu Hong was a famous Pure Land teacher and directed a teaching center at Yunqi Temple that was a vibrant source of Buddhist teachings to all classes of lay people. And it's, it's um, quite unusual but not unheard of for a Pure Land uh, teacher to also be an adept in, in Zen and there are quite a, few, quite a few of these around this same time. And uh, actually to this day uh, Chan uh, in China um, is often practiced in, uh, with a, uh, mixed in with uh, Pure Land teachings. Master Sheng Yen, for instance, would uh, t t teach both. So this Zhu uh, Hong composed guides to practice, assembled, assembled bibliographical information on Buddhist teachers of note, and compiled anthologies of the works of the great teachers of the past. <coughs> he left a rich collection of theoretical writings on the relationship of Pure Land and Zen, and wrote often on the criteria for distinguishing genuine from false approaches to the Dharma. As a true Buddhist adept, Zhu Hong recognized the value of all genuine Buddhist teachings as different means to the same end, to enable people to discover their innate potential for enlightened perception. 
So that's, that's at the core of, of all genuine teachings, to help people to, to uncover their uh, innate Buddhahood. And clearly says, when reading the classic lessons on koan study assembled by Zhu Hong, it is important to bear in mind that the Zen people undertook koan study in the context of a comprehensive effort to refine their behavior and mentality. Studying Zen meant a basic shift of motivations away from the worldly toward the world transcending, away from ambition for personal gain toward ideals of self selfless service. And it's the same for us. We're engaged really in this, as, as he puts it here, a comprehensive effort to refine our behavior and mentality. To work on ourselves, to, to become more conscious of our, our inner workings. so that we can serve. It's in the sutra, I can't remember which one, this is a saying, until we have completed our work, we cannot gladden others. That the, the more we have um, managed to, to liberate ourselves from our own uh, poisons, from our, our greed and our hatred and our delusions, uh, the more we will be able to gladden others, to help others liberate themselves. continues, this is clearly writing. By cutting entanglements, reducing die desires to a minimum, and detaching from, but not suppressing, emotions and thoughts, Zen people worked to free up the mental energy that otherwise would have been expended in the quest for worldly goals of sensory pleasure and ego gratification. It was this freed energy that was applied to koan study and other forms of Buddhist cultivation. Already, um, in this session, um, some people ex experiencing um, a, a freeing up of their energy, um, stuff rising up to consciousness that 
uh, has maybe been ignored or, or blocked out and, and starting to become aware of this stuff. Um, and it is a, it is a sign of, of uh, practice working on our minds, that the mind is, uh, becomes quieter and then these things come up into consciousness. It could be uh, regret over something we've said or done. It could be realizing that we need to um, repair a relationship, apologize for something, or, or uh, make contact with somebody that we've lost touch with, for instance. And these, these things come up and they're, they're important in Sishin. And we can, it's, it's, it could be good to just sort of um, write ourselves a note for after um, to, to act on these things. This is, it's, it's healthy actually to have, have these things arise. But it's also important to press on not to get stuck in, in ruminating about these things, but to recognize them, acknowledge them, and then keep, keep going, because what has brought them up to the surface has actually been the work of, of returning again and again to the breath or the koan, or to the, the sense of the body, the, the um, bodily sensations. continues, to work with koans, the learner must have assimilated the basic Buddhist perspective on the fleeting nature of worldly satisfactions and the ultimate futility of craving and anger. Um, the learner must be ready to act on the proposition that there can be more to life than the continual attempt to acquire love, honor, possessions and social standing. The learner must accept as a working hypothesis the unsettling claim that there are other ways to use the mind outside the search for animal satisfactions and culturally defined goals. The learner must be willing to venture beyond the realm of ceaseless inner dialogue that maintains the false self by pretending that everything is already known and well defined. These are some of the basic lessons drawn from the Buddhist teaching that must be learned as the prerequisites for koan study. I think, um, sometimes uh, the wrong, wrong notion that um, Zen is, is, is somehow completely value-free and, and it can be approached um, without any reference to the teachings of, of the Buddha. But um, actually this is not correct. There has to be, uh, we have to be coming at our practice um, f with uh, a motivation that is, is healthy and sustainable. And that means having to some degree an understanding of the teachings so that we come with, with some, some amount of, of right view. And that, that leads into um, right aspiration because if our aspiration is is 
is a selfish one, then um, it's going to be working at cross-purposes to the practice. He continues, People today are ceaselessly bombarded with artful propaganda and titillating spectacles of all sorts of useless information supposed to fire their imaginations. Attention deficit disorder is a syndrome that increasingly affects all modern people. I checked the, the publication date for, for this book and it came out in, in uh, 1992. So I think things we could fairly say that, that things are a lot more uh, distracted now than they were in, in, in 1992. Now mo uh, most people have their own uh, personal distraction device on their body at all times and can bring it forth whenever needing to, to um, uh, deflect the, the mind in some way. He says, Zen, Zen itself dates from the era before social control by distraction had been raised to its present level as a major industry. But in essence, the obstacles that confront modern people are only an intensified version of what always hindered people trying to learn Zen. Ordinarily, all our life energy is taken up with our mundane attachments, our craving for attention, our day-to-day -day plans, our hopes and fears and ambitions, and our ceaseless work of self-definition. These, these, this little list he's given here are um, the very things that we need to let go of in Sishin. Our mundane attachments, our craving for attention, our day-to-day -day plans, our hopes and fears and ambitions, and our ceaseless work of self-definition. If we find ourselves uh, saying to ourselves, I'm an X sort of person, or this is, this is something not suitable for me, or that's, that's what I'm really like. What if we what if we just stop that that inner talk? What then? Who are we then? What are we? What if we put it all down? It doesn't mean we suddenly we suddenly uh, fall apart because we stop this self-talk because this this talk is really it's it's really not um, what holds us together but rather um, what we attach to the way in which we mistake the various um, aspects of our of ourselves as solid and real.
Once a person becomes aware of the existence of a Buddhist alternative and arrives at the decision to make time to attempt to put it into practice, he or she quickly comes up against the formidable inertia of mental and behavioral routines, what the Buddhists call habit energy. And this really is what we're up against and why we find it so hard to, to um, put down this um, self-talk, the ceaseless work of self-definition, as he says here. People who have tried meditation in any form quickly encounter the prodigious capacity of their minds to scatter into all sorts of random thoughts and images, or to sink down into oblivion, drifting off into sleep and dreams. Meditation with koans must also cope with the two problems of oblivion and scattering. And this topic is addressed repeatedly in the lessons translated below. These two, we've talked about these two before, these two extremes, oblivion and scattering. Um, yesterday we gave them um, the names um, dullness and restlessness, or a, um, a less freighted way of describing would be would be relaxation and tension. And and our work in all forms of meditation is to uh, balance these two aspects. Too relaxed, and we fall into dullness. Too tense, we become um, tight and distracted. Uh, Alan Wallace and all his writings on shamatha practice calls these two uh, laxity and excitation. So in this in this text, we get quite a lot of um, help with working with these two extremes. bringing them into balance. In modern Western life, among ordinary, widely pursued activities, uh, one area that offers instructive par parallels to Zen practice is physical fitness training and athletics. And he goes on to just point out that if you took up, if you took up athletics um, after living a reasonably sedentary life, you wouldn't expect to suddenly be able to um, run a marathon, but over time, if you gradually build up, then you certainly can. And it's it's surprising how we could we could recognise this as you know just a common commonplace kind of thing, um, but but when we come to come to our practice, we um, set very much higher expectations for ourselves. Frequently people in workshops will, will say, oh, my mind is so full of distractions, um, as if they should be able to sit down in a workshop and, and wipe those distractions out in one, with one fell swoop.
He says, no one who has been living the average modern life of ceaseless calculation and worry, spiced with distractions and contrived stimulation, can expect to achieve a steady and sustained focusing of attention right from the start. Anxiety, emotional turmoil, random thoughts, feelings of boredom, cravings for stimulation and distraction, these are powerful habits of mind that cannot be transformed overnight into detachment and tranquility. The capacity to focus attention on an abstract object like a koan that yields none of the usual emotional and intellectual gratifications can only be built up gradually. But in due time, with persistent effort, the person who couldn't jog a hundred yards at first can now learn to run marathons. I think the, the 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 kernel I take out of this paragraph is is, is his description of koan work not yielding any of the usual emotional and intellectual gratifications. Zero gratification a lot of the time. There's this image that's sometimes used of koan work of chewing on an iron spike. Why would you do it? Well, it comes back to comes back to these questions that we have that we that we long to to answer it's interesting that in in sport um, for instance there's there's a, a recognition that um, to run a marathon means to be able to have to work with pain physical pain mental pain to to endure to keep going, and it's it's the same in working on a koan. Well, our time is up. We'll stop here and recite the four vows.